know, it's that old story of boy meets girl, girl is dating boy's married boss, girl tries to commit suicide, boy saves girl's life. Okay, that sounds pretty dark, but somehow it's the basis for a classic romantic comedy, Billy Wilder's 1960 film, The Apartment. The film raises the question of how we distinguish authentic relationships from relationships of utility and convenience. What cultivates human intimacy? What compromises it? When are we just using people? That's the subject for today's discussion. This is Wes Alwyn. And this is Aaron Olanik. And you're listening to Subtext. We've been friends for a year, and I know you know a lot about film, which is just something that happened growing up, right? You haven't formally studied it, but... No, I haven't. My grandfather was known throughout his group of friends on the the block for being a really big film buff. And he kind of got me into it. I was, um, well, it's, it's kind of a like a bigger story than that, I guess you could say. I got really sick with what turned out to be a blood disease when I was when I was 12, which is like a whole story. I'm totally fine now, but it was an opportunity for me basically to stay home from school for two years. And I couldn't do very much because I was really tired all the time. And so I just watched TCM like for two years straight, practically. Mm. And my grandfather would come over and, and watch movies with me or bring me some of his movie books so that my watching TCM nonstop could be enriched with his many resources. And we would talk about the movies and I started getting into reading, you know, film literature and film books. And that's kind of where it, where it officially began. That's when I really became crazy. And, you know, like when is Rita Hayworth for <laughs> Halloween when I was 13 and everyone thought I was Marilyn That's Monroe great. and I was so offended. So, yeah. That's great. I did not have the same experience growing up. I was watching whatever was in the theater or whatever it was on HBO, basically. But when I got to college, I met someone who grew up watching old films and knew a lot about old films. And so I got introduced to these films that way, including Billy Wilder, who was my friend's favorite director. And I think you said he's your favorite director as well, right? He's certainly my, my favorite writer, favorite screenwriter. Okay. And why is that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think of him as a writer before I think of him as a director. And I think that that's it's kind of a fair assessment. Even as a director, I think he's just infinitely more interested in, in story then in image, you know, the way we would typically think of a, a director like Hitchcock as being more interested in, in the image on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, even one might say more interested in line than in, in story, in lines of dialogue. So his, his writing to me is, is really what makes his movies great. So he had been a journalist. I mean, he has a, it's really interesting because he immigrated. Well, he's originally from uh, Austria, right? Yeah. Yeah. Born in Vienna. Yeah. Moved to Berlin, became a screenwriter, but he had, he had been a journalist. And most of his films, right, or is it most or all, are written? He's, he wrote them as well? or Yes. Sometimes the, the co-writer. One of the things I learned looking into the background for this uh, was that he had a brother who's a filmmaker as well. W. Lee, uh, William Lee Wilder. Oh, I didn't even know that. Responsible for such hits as Manfish. And the man without a body. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me make sure this is true. But did I dream this or is this actually... Yeah. It sounds like a dream. He is the brother of Billy Wilder. <laughs> so, so yeah, we had the chance recently to see the apartment on the big screen, which is the first time I had ever seen it that way. 
Same with me. And I almost want to talk about, I'm going to resist the urge, I suppose, to talk about the audience's reaction to the apartment in that particular screening that we were in. But I think, I think some elements of it were kind of telling. It was amazing to see it. Are you, what are you thinking of first and foremost? One particular scene in the film, the reaction to it, I thought was... Slapping on the, the face. Slapping, yes. The slapping. The slapping. Kind of what that means for the larger themes of the film. And I think there's an argument to be made that maybe Billy Wilder is contemptuous of women. I did, there's a whole school of thought there. One of the things that I learned looking on IMDb, because I had the same, we, I don't think we've discussed this, but I had the exact same reaction. Well, I, I was kind of surprised by the audience's reaction. So she is... I was too. ...has taken a bunch of sleeping pills and they're trying to revive her. And so the doctor, who is also the next door neighbor of the protagonist, whose name I forget. Dr. Dreyfus. Right. Dr. Dreyfus. Yep. Good name. Like all the names in this movie. He's trying to revive her. So they're giving her coffee and uh, walking her around. But one of the things he does first is smelling salts. And then he slaps her in the face um, a few times. And one of the things I learned is that those were real slaps. And that the whole scene was choreographed by doctors that he had on set. So saying, how would you revive someone who's tried to commit suicide with the sleeping pills. And this is what they said to do. And they also said, they did that scene in, in one take, I think, with the slapping. And they said, well, he didn't slap her hard enough, so you should reshoot it. And Billy Wilder refused to, do, to reshoot it. They seem pretty hard to me. They seem really hard. I'm surprised that someone would have a problem with it being that hard. <laughs> It's harsh, it's startling. The audience reacts with laughter. I mean, my instinct wasn't to react with laughter, though. And that's why I noticed that so much. The reactions were also, there was a lot of gasping. You, you could tell that there was this kind of indignation from, from the audience at, at what the doctor was doing, which was incredible to me. And the audience's gasping and sort of disbelief that, oh my gosh, you know, this doctor is hitting a woman. It just seems to me to be completely misplaced. And then the laughter too, the uncomfortable laughter was also kind of unsettling. It's interesting that we had such similar reactions because I was sort of caught up more in the drama of the moment. And I, I mean, I guess it's probably a product of our times, right? That people are, there's a heightened sensitivity to those sorts of interactions. Sure, and yet not to the much more severe and disturbing interactions between Fran and the, the the boss character played by Fred McMurray, whose name escapes me at the moment, and even between Jack Lemmon's character, Sheldrake, another great name. Even though this, this question didn't occur to me explicitly, I was thinking a lot about Jack Lemmon's character, Cece Baxter, who on the face of it is a womanizer. That's what Dr. Dreyfus thinks he is and someone who's constantly having women over to his apartment. And of course, we really know that he's just lending out his apartment to other men in the office so they can have extramarital affairs, basically, which is you know morally compromising in its, in its own right. But the question is whether he is another decent character. And you seem to be suggesting that maybe decent isn't the right word for him. Well, you know, I think it's interesting that we only really hear his motivation for for how he he got into this predicament in the first place towards the tail end of the film when he talks about how one of his coworkers used his apartment as a place to get changed it started out rather innocently that Baxter's character was was just using 
which is kind of doing this guy a favor by allowing him the use of his apartment. And then word got around that he had this apartment that was available in a, in a convenient area. You know, you think sort of from the beginning that he must have been making his apartment available, you know, explicitly for the use of these extramarital affairs. You don't find out how it started until he sort of recounts everything at the end of the movie. So the, the placement of that is odd too, because you have slightly more sympathy for him when you discover how, how it began. You know, he wasn't just offering his, his apartment to people as, as a place for a tryst from the outset. So I don't know that we're supposed to think he's a decent character. The impression I had gotten... So I, I rewatched the movie since we saw it on the big screen just to, you know, I knew I, I would not remember. But, you know, the impression I had when we saw it together recently was that his rent had gone up and that he couldn't afford to live there without letting people have these trysts there. Of course, that makes no sense because he's not charging them. Um, right. The, she, he does mention the rent going up, but that has no connection. So. And you do get the impression during the film, even though he says, I'm not very ambitious, I have a cozy little apartment that's just right for a bachelor, but I can't get into it whenever, whenever I want. That's part of his voiceover at the very, very beginning of the film. It does seem like he's letting people in his office use it so he can advance his career, basically, get a promotion. Yes, yes. And you do have those great shots at the beginning of the film that establish the almost dystopian look of the office in which he works. Yes. So, yeah. I, and actually I read, I don't know if you read the same thing, but I, the, uh, the trick that he played visually, that Wilder played visually, which was really smart to have children in smaller, succeedingly smaller desks in the back so that the, the room would appear to go on forever, almost to the vanishing point. So they didn't have the actual space to, it's the, you know, the office itself in which Baxter works is just, it's this massive open floor plan with men and women at their machines. I guess they're doing calculations, right? Are they actuaries? Is that, is yes. that what they are? An insurance company. And they, he wanted to make the, this illusion of a massive office space and he, they didn't have the real space to do that. Yeah. So he, he did this thing with perspective where he had the desks get smaller and smaller and, and at a certain point it transitions from adults to children. During my second watching, I was trying to, I was looking for the children in the back <laughs> watching that scene. But, <laughs> and, and the very, very back, it's actually like puppets or something. It's not even children, but it's a great kind of thematic idea as well to juxtapose the somewhat, whether you think of the apartment as cramped or cozy, you know, will depend, I guess. It could be, it could be both. And maybe it goes from, from one to the other. But that sort of contrast between this very open, space and then the uh, the apartment that really is thematically interesting i think yeah you have sympathy for him seeing him in this you know heartless corporate atmosphere right as as one of you know a drone trying to do anything to make his way to the top but i wonder how much sympathy we are supposed to have for that because i don't have much in terms of how how he goes out about succeeding though it seems as though this is one of the only ways you can succeed or get noticed in this company. So the movie starts with the voiceover of him giving these actuarial statistics so that you get the impression that he's very nerdy and preoccupied with detail and it sort of lends itself to his general obliviousness which we'll get into. And then we see him in the office, you know, one of the cogs in the machine, although there's this great moment where 
all the typing is happening in rhythm and he just very briefly starts bouncing his head to that. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I do. And gets that sort of look of unexpected pleasure on his face, which is he also has during a scene when he's in front of the TV and they're announcing the stars who are going to be in the movie. Oh, yeah. In Grand Hotel. So great. So many great stars in that movie. That's like the exact reaction that I have when I hear <laughs> when I hear a list of stars in Grand Hotel, as I often do. His eyes get successively wider. And, mm -hmm. and then, of course, he's disappointed by the interrupted by the ads. But <laughs> that's like maybe my favorite moment in the whole movie. Yeah, it's funny. It's it goes to Jack Lemmon's strength as a as a comic actor, but I find him an odd choice for a leading man. But I guess I, I trouble thinking that you know someone like him would be a leading man even in a comedy these days because of his, or at least the way the character is done. Maybe it's not Jack Lemmon, but maybe it's just the character, the passivity of the character, the obliviousness, the you know, as you've pointed out, the sense in which maybe we can't call him decent exactly. Taking a step back in my mind here to think about Jack Lemmon as a as a film figure or or his persona in film, I, I suppose there's the character of Baxter and then there's Jack Lemmon himself. Mm -hmm. And as movies so often do, they play on our familiarity with and our, our love of the persona to sort of carry the character over even his most unlikable moments. Maybe thinking of Baxter as uh, someone who we're supposed to dislike is kind of the wrong angle to go in on because it's Jack Lemon. So we're supposed to like him in spite of how terrible he is, or maybe even because of how terrible he is, because he's Jack Lemon doing his Jack Lemon thing, whatever, whatever that is. But it's, you know, it's, I think you're right. It's that nerdiness, that odd couple kind of persona that he has. I read that sort of Billy Wilder's philosophy was to not try and, you know, have actors overextend themselves, but to sort of, I don't know if it's play themselves exactly. They're not trying to be method actors, I guess. Drawing on the strengths of their personalities. Um, right, which is what I love about Wilder and, and what I think he really understands about the movies and what makes his movies so enjoyable to me in the 50s and 60s when you had this onslaught of method acting. And with Wilder... I don't know, what I want as a moviegoer is to see the personas that I like doing what they do well. And I think Wilder understood that. That's another sort of philosophical thing that we could, we could get into in terms of talking about like the persona and what that means. But I have definite opinions about all of these things, which, which may be wrong, but they're to my own taste. Even if they're wrong, they're interesting. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so let's go back first to... What it is about Lemons, you use the word terrible, how terrible he is, the phrase how terrible he is. What is terrible about Baxter as a character? We get the impression that he's a, how can we put this nicely, an opportunist. He's willing to do what it takes to climb the corporate ladder, irrespective of, of any kind of morality. He doesn't mind and per perhaps even enjoys the fact that his neighbors think of him as being a Lothario because they hear the noises coming from his apartment and assume that it's him having multiple affairs, sometimes, you know, two a day. And he seems to take some pleasure in that. Would you say that he takes pleasure in it? I don't know. Um, he doesn't mind that they think this. Yes, I think he does take some pleasure in that. Yeah, he's being thought of to be a, a ladies' man, or as he says, a, a, another point in the film, a notorious sex pot, I think is his yes. phrase. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that he uses that term also is 
<laughs> makes him a terrible person. Sex pod. <laughs> <laughs> Such like a, a 1960 dirty word. But um, yeah, so, you know, he, he doesn't seem to have any, I mean, as I think a lot of, a lot of Billy Wilder's characters don't have the sense of an interior moral compass that they're guided by. They're almost never, or shall we say, they have expediency on their mind always. And it's never affected by any kind of internal sense of right and wrong on the part of the character until, you know, we could say in the apartment until the very last moment. Because until shockingly late in the film, even having a suicide attempt in his apartment, he's still trying to save face for the Sheldrake character. Right, right. His turnaround, when it does happen, you know, it comes from his his love of the Shirley MacLaine character and not his sense that what Sheldrake has done has been deeply wrong on any kind of objective level, just that he's hurt the Shirley MacLaine character in particular. There's no moral objectivity in Billy Wilder. There's only expediency and love of individuals, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean, I have in my notes this phrase, passivity is decency. which I'm, huh. not, I'm not sure, or decency is passivity, which I'm not sure exactly what I meant now. But so I think my moral compass is compromised. I think that's a really smart observation. Or the two coexisting in any of the, like the scenes in the Chinese restaurant, I think are so good for that reason. Like the true, like, you know, festivity and the true meaning of the word. And then seeing all the, the sort of layers of, of interaction that are happening in those scenes or in the bar when he when he dances with the, so this is great. Oh, so good. The, the married woman, Mrs. whatever her name is, who's Margie or Marjorie? Marjorie something. Do we do we know her we first do. name? We do. Okay. We learn her last name, Mrs. Margie McDougal. Right. And poor Mr. McDougal, a prisoner in, in <laughs> King Castro's Cuba. Who she's going to have beat up Baxter because Baxter <laughs> didn't allow her to stay in his apartment for their tryst. So. Oh, gosh. But go ahead. Yeah, the scene in the bar. I mean, when I think of the apartment, I think of two scenes. The tennis racket scene and then the, the New Year's Eve celebration at the Chinese restaurant with the, the confetti and, and streamers on everyone's heads. And I always think of what a nightmare that would be to clean up the hats. Sheldrake wearing that ridiculous hat and being totally taken with the festivity and totally oblivious to the fact that Fran Kubelik is not enamored with anything and having a really terrible time. And this is only days after she has had her stomach pumped and everything else. So Yeah, days after she's had her stomach pumped, his wife has just left him. Most of the men in this film are utterly repellent and he's repellent. But this at this moment, it gets like just sickening his level of opportunism and insensitivity, you know, and because he was completely unsympathetic to her suicide attempt and just sort of chastised her and that was it. And he's only with her because his wife left him and has also told Baxter that he's going to enjoy his life as a bachelor for a while. I think he says, Happy New Year's, friend, right as, you know, it's New Year's, right? So Happy New Year's. And then he himself is oblivious to the how uncomfortable the situation is or how morally compromised maybe the situation is and then turns around for the festivities and then when he, when he turns back to her, she's gone. I think oblivious is, is a word that can be applied to basically all the men in the film except for Dr. Dreyfus. 
they're all operating under some sort of complete disregard for what the women are actually experiencing. Even the obliviousness of Mrs. McDougal there doesn't really compare to Baxter's obliviousness in in that moment. He he sees that you know Shirley MacLaine is in his bedroom and and is then trying to get Mrs. McDougal out, but he's not listening to anything that she's saying, and and he's not he sort of doesn't realize the situation he's gotten himself into with her passivity and obliviousness. Where do those two converge in him? It's a good point. I mean, there's, yeah, there's two competing forms of obliviousness at that point between Margie McDougal and Baxter, which I hadn't thought of. And that's, that's interesting. We feel sorry for her in that moment too. I mean, she says to him, I think at some point, like, well, where am I supposed to go? She was supposed to <laughs> stay over with him in the apartment. And yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's, that's what everyone is constantly asking him when he kicks them out of the apartment. Where am I supposed to go? Nobody in this film wants to pay for a hotel room. That's what I took away, is that everyone's so cheap. Why the need to take over someone else's abode for this? I think that says something important <laughs> beyond not wanting to pay for a hotel. Yeah, what, what is that? I mean, there's something, you know, when, when Margie walks in, she says, wow, Snugsville, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the, like, the jarring bits of silly slang that, that are in the movie, Snugsville. And it is kind of... I think the apartment itself is kind of a is kind of Snugsville. The way it's decorated, it's it's kind of warm and it's not antiseptic. Like a lot of the relationships are in a way antiseptic that go on in the film, but the apartment itself is uh, cozy. There's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> cozy. And it was you know I, I read that it was decorated like uh, Billy Wilder actually used some of his own decorations on that on that set. I think he was trying to cut corners in all sorts of different ways. You know, and there's Tiffany lamps in there, and it's not you know it's not what you imagine a typical bachelor pad to be. It's not like it's it looks like it has a feminine touch exactly, but it's it's not like a typical bachelor pad. And such a small place like that, you know, maybe it's the illusion of intimacy that people are after with that that you don't get with a hotel or. You know, regarding the hotel, I, I think of of something like like the Graduate. You know, the Benjamin Braddock character in, in the Graduate is being maybe kind of a like a child of Jack Lemmon um, in terms of movie personas in a lot of ways, with the awkwardness and passivity. But the scene where he meets Mrs. Robinson in the lobby of the hotel, and there's the party going on, some company party going on, and so he runs into all of these old ladies. There's that awkwardness, I guess, of carrying on an affair in a hotel that Mike Nichols, is, as the director, really kind of highlights the question of, well, you show up to the hotel and Benjamin doesn't have any luggage. And then he, he makes a show of, oh, he's going to go into the car and get his luggage and comes back and sort of like, you know, pats his, his chest pocket and says, oh, I have a toothbrush in here, you know, and the matter of what to put on the guest registry, what name to put down. You know, all of these things I think is being kind of, they're really similar to what might be in, in a Billy Wilder movie. When you have to deal with the awkwardness and the reality of actually carrying out an affair in a hotel, the interacting with other people and the, the justifying it to yourself and everything, you know, it's, it's more real versus just showing up to some office drones apartment and knowing that at most you're going to have to run into somebody in the hallway and that'll be it. But And they don't even have the, you know, there's the, the key exchange through the couriers in the office. But for the most part, they're just putting the key underneath the mat outside of Baxter's door. 
you don't have to see anyone. You don't have to talk to anyone. You don't have to worry about people, you know, seeing you at a hotel or something. So maybe that's some element of it, that there's even less accountability in carrying out an affair in someone's apartment than there is in a hotel and less on the, the man that he has to do in order to carry it out. You know, the women that these men are with, it seems pretty clear that they know that they're married men and that these are trysts. So the Kirkaby character, I think it's that one, when he's outside the apartment, his date says something like, have you been having other girls up here? And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm a happily married man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's sort there's of the great line. There's a seediness, right, to the hotel thing. And there's a chance to enjoy the transgressiveness of that, if that's what you like. But there's also a chance to get depressed by that. And to have to, to, have to face it yeah. in, in a more tangible way when you have to sign a hotel registry or something. But there's also, you know, there's the question of intimacy and wanting the illusion of that, which I think the apartment provides. Wanting to do this thing where you are not just having a openly utilitarian sexual relationship, but masking it, giving it the illusion of some sort of intimacy, giving it the illusion of some sort of romance. And the alcohol can, you know, they're always showing up with uh, champagne or... Um, yeah, in glasses. Yeah, <laughs> martinis in the glasses as he gets out of the cab, which is also great. Yeah, to provide some illusion of romance and connection to something that doesn't have that. Well, and think also of the, I think you're absolutely right. And think also of the fact that, you know, there's that anteroom before the, the bedroom. You know, I mean, of course, it's a living room, but it might just be an anteroom for the purposes of the people who use the apartment. You know, you walk into a hotel room and the majority of the hotel room is a bed. In the apartment, you go in and there's a couch and there's a TV and, you know, you set up your glasses and your your champagne and there's a little bit of preliminary. There's a little bit of the promise of, like you say, of, of this intimacy, of this real relationship. So and then the emotional be- bedroom. foreplay. Exactly. Yeah, I was yeah. going to use the word foreplay, but then I, I thought, <laughs> well, you know, not... Maybe not really, but yes, emotional foreplay for sure. And then the apartment set, I'm sorry, the bedroom of the apartment set sort of in the shadows, in the back, like always, always there, always in the frame. But, you know, door open, door closed, you know, depending upon what's going on in there, that in the same way, it's sort of always in the back of the mind of the guy who's in there with the woman, you know, like, okay, how can I most easily finesse this so I can get her through that door? you know, with, with whatever I, I'm going to do in the living room so that, uh, you know, you can, I can play it off as, oh, we're having this romantic evening, but ultimately that the, the bedroom door is like the goalpost, right? To put it in a totally disgusting way. But um, yeah, and it's, I mean, disgusting is really, that's a lot of what's going on in the film. It's um, <clears throat> no matter how libertine you might be, it's just really hard to not feel repelled. <laughs> by all of it, it all just unfolds without any internal moral judgment within the film, which is as it should be, because that would undermine it dramatically. You know, to go back to what we were saying earlier about the idea of the moral compass, we think of Hollywood movies under, at least I do, under the production code as being hemmed in by this kind of sense of moral judgment imposed upon the film by the production code, by good old fashioned American values. And so I was thinking, you know, as we were talking, maybe it's to the film's credit that 
Baxter doesn't have any kind of interior moral compass that we can discern. Wilder's vision of the world is, is fundamentally amoral. And thus his choice at the end then becomes that much more profound that, you know, he's, he's not going to choose against good and bad. He's going to choose between sort of material and spiritual in a way, or, or loving someone versus not loving them. Being a nebbish and being a mensch. And being a mensch. That's it. Yes. Thank you Dr. for Dreyfus's formulations. Giving yeah. me that. Yeah. Dr. Dreyfus, who is who is the moral compass, maybe, in the film. Um right. and, and his wife, who is just the ideal chicken soup making <laughs> yes. Jewish mm, mom. Who's yeah. Great. Yeah. But back to earlier and talking about the disgustingness of, of the film. It struck me at some point, it, does he say it about the blonde woman who's in the apartment the first time that she looks like Marilyn Monroe? Who says that? Uh, so that's a scene when um, he gets called by Mr. Dobish and Dobish is in the bar with the Marilyn Monroe lookalike. Yes, that's right. And that's when they come out of the cab with the, with the champagne glasses yeah. that they're drinking from. That really struck me. I don't know if it, I don't know if it struck you in the same way, but Wilder was coming off of some like it hot. Yeah. And the pitiful sort of nature of, of this woman and her, her similarity to Marilyn Monroe, you just think, you know, if Marilyn Monroe were in this movie, she would be one of the women who is being taken up to Jack Lemmon's apartment. Right. Well, she wanted to be, apparently she told Wilder at a party that she had wanted to be the Kubla character, that she wished she had been chosen to be the Kubla character. Of course, I think he was fed up with her by the time he got off Some Like It Hot, right? He didn't like working with her. And it's hard not to see the scene in the film as kind of a, you know, it's not just a joking reference to her, but it's kind of a jab at her. I don't know. I might be over reading that, but she says, so she's very drunk. And as Dobish is on the phone, you know, she comes up to the phone booth and is tottering and then knocks on it. And, you know, when he opens the door, she says, I'm getting lonely in the Marilyn Monroe voice, of course, which is, yeah, it's sad. I think, I don't know if that's the word you use, sad or pathetic or. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I think of one of my favorite moments in the, in the film for the Kubla character when she, when she says that the broken mirror she likes the fact that it's broken because she looks the way she feels on the inside. That's a line I'm sure that um, Marilyn Monroe would like to have delivered or, or felt or. I think that might be the first time the nest and that's right. That's right near the middle of the movie where the unpleasantness becomes explicit. She's in pain because, and normally she's a very kind of sprightly smiling eyes type of character, but she's been pained because another Someone else in the office, Miss Olson, has basically told her about Sheldrake's serial womanizing. And so she knows that she's just another one of these many women. And so she's in, she's in a lot of pain. And this is during the office party. And she's learned that in between the time that Baxter kind of grabs her off the elevator, in which she's, she's in a pretty good mood to come have a drink with him before they get to his office. So... She's in pain. She's got that pained expression on her face. Baxter, as usual, is oblivious to it. And finally, he sees the mirror, and that's when he gets it. She makes that remark. I mean, he gets it, of course, because he's seen that mirror before in his apartment. But it's hard not to think that he also gets it because he's been 
shown this very obvious visual representation of her situation. This is before he's going to go to the bar, right, and get really drunk and have all that stuff with the Marge, Marjorie character. But I think it's the first time we see, you know, he's, he's got this look of shock and distress. I think that's the first time we see anything really profound maybe out of him as far emotionally that's unpleasant. Most of the time he's running around being oblivious or goofy or maybe he's irritated about apartment stuff. But here he gets genuinely depressed. I mean, in Some Like It Hot, it would be interesting to watch that alongside this this film because I, I think that uh, Wilder has a lot of fun with Marilyn Monroe in that movie, meaning she's often the butt of the joke. I don't think, though, that the Shirley MacLaine character, I, th- I think that Fran Kublik has a lot of dignity in this. I don't think that she's ever the butt of the joke in that way. And I think that's why, I mean, this is my favorite Wilder film by far because of the humanity of the, of the characters. She doesn't seem to me to be pathetic at all. She's a lot of dignity that very few other Wilder women have. Well, you're going to be much more of an expert. I mean, even though I've seen almost all of his films, it's been so long. So I, I don't have the memory, unfortunately, <laughs> to, to compare. You'd have to do that for me. But it would have been impossible for Marilyn Monroe to play that character. I mean, speaking of sex pots, I mean, it's not a sex pot type of character. And I don't know that Marilyn Monroe right. could have done that. Um, I might not know enough about her actually to make that judgment either. But the Fran character is very well defended, as a psychoanalyst would put it. She's she's not obviously wounded in the way that is Marilyn Monroe obviously wounded. But whether or not Marilyn Monroe is that way, she's got a genuine vitality about her and happiness, even though we find out later on that her and Baxter have a lot in common. You know, she's ended up with the wrong men. In a way, she's unlucky. And then you see that kind of reinforced in the gin game or the rummy game there playing where she keeps losing. The idea of them both being kind of losers, it's, it becomes the thing that starts to bond them. But yeah, I think you're just getting at your point about her her decency as well. Maybe it's not right to say Dreyfus is the only decent character. I think she's, you know, even though she's doing something which itself is you know also lacking in moral compass by dating Dreyfus, just her, her persona, her Dating Sheldrake. Shel, Sheldrake, sorry. Yeah. Dreyfus. <laughs> uh, she, you know, she comes across as fundamentally a good person. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think Dreyfus, in, in terms of male characters for me, is yeah, the only decent right. one. But she certainly has a lot of decency. I think what you say about, about her being unlucky is really important. Maybe this is a terribly superficial thing to say, but looking at Marilyn Monroe, no one would think her to be unlucky in any way. <laughs> yeah. Shirley MacLaine is perfect for this role because she isn't a knockout. She is, I mean, I do think of Marilyn Monroe as being a wounded kind of person. And, and one could make the argument that, that the way that she looks could be perhaps part of her unluckiness, you know, only being seen in a certain kind of a light, never being seen in the way that she wants to be. But what makes Fran so complex as a character is the fact that she smacks more of, of ordinary womanhood you know she's she's sweet and she's plucky and she's certainly attractive but there's nothing particularly remarkable about her physically or perhaps intellectually i mean she's she's certainly clever but she may be more of more of an every woman than jack lemon is the the classic every man which he always plays she seems therefore to have just a lot more pathos for me as a character because she's the every woman who happened to be dealt this really bad hand 
Whereas Jack Lemmon is the everyman who maybe is dealt the same hand as everyone else. And that's part of what what makes him so maddening in his passivity. I think of McLean as in, in this film as being unlucky, where I think of Jack Lemmon's character as being on his way to being a mensch, but not there, but not there yet. No more nor less lucky than, than anyone else as, as part of his state. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I the association I just had is to the fact that luck is an actuarial concept. Oh. The whole casting the movie in the beginning in terms of circumstance. And this lends itself to the idea of passivity. Oh, I'm just subject to circumstances. And, but also to, you know, your idea that I think it's it kind of connects up to people approaching life, you know, in terms of expediency. There are opportunities, there are lucky moments, and you take them or you don't. And to the extent that you have a conscience or moral compass, you become unlucky. You interfere with your luck. And thinking about Fran's situation where she's ended up with the wrong guy, you know, it's not her decency exactly that drives that. And then they, you know, they bond over that. It turns out he's had a suicide attempt as well, although it's an accidental attempt where he shoots himself in the leg and... And that was over unrequited love. And also a point of attempts at hilarity in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to think more about this whole luck factor, but I think it's important that that luck and conscience butt up against each other in the in the sense that you close off possibilities, you lose lucky opportunities like getting lucky. You're not gonna get lucky maybe as much or at all if you're to the extent that you have a moral compass. And I find that interesting and the, the way they, you know, the way they bond. So after there's that whole 45 minutes of we're almost entirely stuck in that apartment with them while she recuperates, which I don't know. I found that kind of claustrophobic in the film. I don't know if you do. I'd start to get antsy with all of that. There's a few cutaways to Sheldrake, but mostly we're in that apartment. And for the most part, Baxter is kind of depressed through all of that. And we don't see him liven up again he will liven up again and get kind of elated and that happens after he says he's been living like robinson crusoe alone and it seems to occur to him that he's happy just to have company which is of course something that has not really happened in the film to this point no one's really been in each other's company in any real sense up to that point. But at this point, they've been forced to spend enough time together. I mean, is that what it takes in the modern world? That <laughs> a suicide attempt and recuperation to be forced into a position? And gin rummy. That's a, right. big, that's a big part right, of it too. Of course, right. Yeah. The last line will be shut up and deal. Um, the, you need another activity, of course. And it can't be explicitly sexual, directly sexual. It has to be a sublimating activity. It has to be a redirection of those, those energies. And a, and a distraction of the mind too, almost to free to free up the emotions. I found that really interesting. We have to we go through almost forty five minutes of horribleness in the apartment, and then Baxter is revived. I'm looking at my notes a little bit more because I he tells her about his suicide attempt. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's the remark about being like a hermit, and then there's something about the fact that he's shared that with her. That very personal detail. Another element, um, which I've forgotten about until now, reliving that whole scene with the, the two days of recuperation, is when Fran's brother-in-law comes to pick her up and Jack Lemon ends up getting punched by the brother-in-law 
And he says, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It didn't hurt a bit. That seemed to be sort of an interesting, you know, you always get these punches in movies that seem like necessary punches where the person getting punched sort of wakes up. Yes, yes. Bringing them into the the physical realm with a good punch does everybody a, a bit of good. Is that the moment at which he... He realizes that he's going to... No, it's not because he he later gets the... That's the plot point that gives us a transition to the third act. And then the third act, he will... He's planning to go up and tell Sheldrake that he's going to take Fran off of his hands, which is a delusional way to approach all of that. Also repellent. Right. And then finds out that he can't do that and then gives up again momentarily. Well, because Sheldrake is going to take her off of off of Baxter's hands. <laughs> yes, they get that reversal, <laughs> which is you know clever verbally that they use the same terminology. And it, one of the great Wilder dialogue moments when the, when he he rehearses it to himself, and then and then Sheldrake comes out with almost the exact same bit of dialogue, which we could talk about a little bit. I mean, the dialogue in this and the cleverness of the. Um, Certain recurring the wise modes of the wise, yeah. Otherwise, and this wise, and that wise. That's the way the cookie crumbles, or that's the way it crumbles, cookie wise. She says, "Yeah, that's the way it crumbles, cookie wise." Yeah, a double callback. Right. That's another element in the movie which gives us the sense of something mechanical and impersonal that's just grinding on. Right. It starts with Kirkaby speaking into a dictaphone and saying. Premium-wise and billing-wise, we are 18% ahead of last year, October-wise. Yes, October-wise. Yeah, good. Obviously, it's trying to get at some of the soullessness of this contemporary knowledge work and some of the meaninglessness of it. And it pervades the way that people talk about things. So Kirkaby will later say, if Kubelik, she won't give me a tumble, date-wise. And Baxter... You know, when he's going up in the elevator, he thinks he's getting a promotion. He says to Fran, you're carrying precious cargo. I mean, manpower-wise, all of that sort of stuff. That ties into what I was telling you before before we started recording about David Thompson and his great biographical dictionary of film, which I, which I picked up and, and read through a little bit because I don't, I don't think I had ever read Thompson's entry on, on Billy Wilder and was really shocked to discover that Thompson is not a Wilder fan. And that soullessness of which you speak, I think it works so well in this movie because of the actuarial culture, let's call it. But David Thompson would say, I think that it's all that it's all Wilder, that the soullessness is one of Wilder's faults as a writer, that he's sort of all gags and, and punchlines, yeah. and that there's very little underlying humanity in, in his movies. Like, for instance, his movie, um, One, Two, Three, which was kind of a failed movie of his from the 60s, underlines Wilder's merits and failings. And the, the film is an exercise in comedy fast enough to manage on puns, wisecracks, and double meanings alone. Thompson feels as though he, he kind of defaults into, you know, these verbal exercises as a way to cover up the fact that he has no inherent human feeling. <laughs> it's really, it's really uh, an attack. It's kind of amazing. What do you think of it? You know, it's it's funny because I, I agree with him and I don't agree with him. I, I've never liked Some Like It Hot and I never really knew why. I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Marilyn Monroe, admittedly, and um, I find her to be not as charming as some people think she is. Well, nobody's perfect. Right. Nobody's perfect. That's true. <laughs> Sorry. 
That's the last. That's the last line of the movie. I think. I think that was the the tagline on Billy Wilder's obit. Oh. By the way, when oh, he yeah, died, yeah, like, no, it's on his gravestone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, that's great. He says, "I was a writer, but nobody's perfect." Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Like Thompson says about Some Like It Hot, he says it's a dazzling verbal comedy well played by Curtis and Lemon, but compare it with the best screwball of the 30s and see how necessary the stream of jokes is to conceal the indifference to character or meaning. Mm. It's 90 odd minutes of jokes based on one ingenious situation without any attempt at dramatic progress or culmination. Yet in hindsight, we can see how much that film did to unsettle gender confidence. So he gives him that. It's true though, because as a you know, as a lover of 1930s screwball comedies more than anything else, I, I see the emptiness, perhaps, the, the paucity of Some Like It Hot compared to those great 30s screwball comedies with Cary Grant and Irene Dunn and Roz Russell and Kate Hepburn and all, and all of those, those greats, that they do seem to have more meat to them in terms of character and situation and everything. Whereas Wilder's tendency as a, as a, a writer's director is to go from from gag to gag from verbal setup to verbal or to punchline and yet that failing works really well in the apartment because of the idea that these are people who who are nickeling and diming people they're assigning i don't know what do actuaries do they're they're assigning dollar values to to people's lives maybe um so it kind of it kind of works in the same way. And the insurance company, by the way, is called Consolidated Life, which I think is great. But, but Cons- uh, go ahead. <laughs> Consolidated Life, yeah, that's 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 perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. Wilder, you know. But this this kind of ties in with my idea of of film personas as you know the best performances for me are characters that often kind of dovetail with the you know the equipment that an actor has naturally, the way that they look, the way they speak. And the film role is as being kind of born out of an, an actor's strengths as well as their failings and, and playing those failings to their advantage. I think that Wilder in the apartment, this is these are his failings working to his advantage, perhaps. I mean, Thompson would call them failings. Um, I don't know if, if other people would agree with that, but this idea that that maybe his er um <laughs> his er sensibility here is fundamentally actuarial. Or something, and and it, it works best with that kind of backdrop, with the soulless backdrop, and then the the human element can flourish from this dead atmosphere or something. That is really interesting because now I'm thinking about because of the the amoral authorial approach. I guess maybe that's not the right way to put it. I have the same Billy Wilder's films. They don't, you know, I can't say that they would be among my favorites, really, or that. I think the 70s is more my style. <laughs> so Rosemary's Baby and Annie Hall and a bunch of other 70s films. I don't know why that... I hate to be that person, but Rosemary's Baby is 68. Yes, I know. I always do that. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually tweeted about Rose. Was it tweeting or I put it something on Facebook? Or I might have even mentioned it in a pod, another Partially Examined Life podcast and I made the same mistake. And I got angry, people angry that I had gotten the wrong date in correcting me on that. And I'm still doing it because I see it fundamentally as of that. It, it is a 70s movie though. Yeah. No, no, you're totally right. And it's Polanski. Yeah. Polanski, I think of as just being 70s in every way. Yeah, so. exactly. I don't get the feeling out of these movies of something profound or it's it's not as ultimately it's not 
say, as moving to me as a lot of other work, which is not to say that there isn't, you know, he's got a very typical dramatic arc in here and it's, it's a movement towards human intimacy. So you can't really deny that in this film. And even the use of this wise, you know, we were talking about this wise and that wise, it's used for a specific purpose, right? More than comic purpose. So eventually, you know, he has Sheldrake say, you take a girl out a couple times a week just for laughs and right away she thinks you're serious marriage-wise. Oh no, Baxter says that. But he's pretending to be the womanizer that he's not. He's saying that to Dreyfus. Oh, oh and talking to Dreyfus, sure. Well, he has the, he has the language down. So the, the idea that, you know, something about office life or the pragmatics of living infects relationships or undermines relationships, that's there and that's obviously intentionally there thematically. It's somewhat abrupt at the end of the movie, you know, the transition. I mean, I think, I think there's some subtleties to that. We were talking about in the second act when they're in the apartment and they're playing cards and they're starting to build a relationship. It's not like the ground isn't set for that, but it seems a little abrupt and strange to have Fran suddenly run away from Sheldrake and go back to the apartment. But it's not very emotionally satisfying to me. It's there conceptually, but it's not a point of great emotional satisfaction. That's one of Thompson's problems with, with the film too, that the sudden turnaround is, is completely unconvincing. But he picks a lot at, at Wilder's writerly sense in films and, and his lack of understanding of both the emotional and the visual, how those two things are, are tied pretty closely together. And yet I would say that in The Apartment that it's probably his strongest film visually in terms of his like really great use of... Thompson mentions about... He's talking about, I think, Sunset Boulevard, where in narration, which so many of Wilder's films you know, are relying on narration, in the narration of Sunset Boulevard, William Holden's character mentions that Norma Desmond's handwriting looks like the handwriting of a child. And Thompson says, you know, we never see a piece of, of Norma Desmond's handwriting, you know? So this is like one of Wilder's typical writerly tricks that has no, no business being on film. You say that in a story to mean something, but you have to translate that into film visually in order for it to be part of the language of movie making. You can't get away with something like that. And so he calls him out on it. But I think in the apartment that marriage of the visual and the verbal works best of any of Wilder's films, like the image of the tennis racket straining the spaghetti. You know, that's such a great visual gag. And that's something that I always say, well, how is he going to manage that every time he goes to do it? You know, yeah. it's something that, that you think, well, that can only work on paper, but then it does work visually in the film or the, or the broken mirror. Such a great image that you know you think about when you think of that film and the 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 office scene and the it, it seems to me to have more visual moments that one can look back on than any other Wilder movie that I can think of. And there's a great shot on the park bench when he's locked out of his apartment where you get the use of perspective. You get an extreme perspective on the bench extending back into the distance. It's a beautiful shot, and there are lots of you know, beautiful shots, which as I learned doing background research, which you already know is that he's not known for what he does visually. But. Right. And that may be more, more to the cinematographer's credit than to his, but it does seem to be existing in, in the language of images more than in the language of language. Well, he had the, he had the film editor on set for some reason. I did, well, it seems like it might have been a budgetary thing to minimize the amount of shots they had to take. So the editors were on set 
I don't know if that influenced it, but... I think of Wilder's career in kind of in two phases. A lot of his earlier movies were actually... Movies that I think of as, as his were movies that he actually just wrote the screenplay to. When he first came to Hollywood in the mid-30s, he wrote two movies for Lubitsch and a few movies for um, Mitchell Leeson and this Howard Hawks movie, Ball of Fire. And I think of them as being Wilder movies and they're, they're not. They're just written or co-written by him. And then I think of his later movies as being from Sunset Boulevard on. And he had a lot of, he had a lot of clunkers mixed in there, which all directors do. You know, he had, I mean, I think Witness for the Prosecution, for instance, from 57 is, is a terrible movie. One, two, three from the 60s, also a very bad movie. And oh, that there's another one with Shirley MacLaine, Irma LaDuce, I think it's called, is really bad. I loved it when I was a little kid, but it's, it's really bad. Yeah, my friend who introduced me to all of this loved that loved that movie. I think that might have been the first one we watched. <laughs> oh, really? <Yeah. laughs> I loved it as a kid. I think because I loved the costumes. I don't know why else I would love it. But he's he's someone with a really mixed legacy when you think about it. When you examine film by film, he does have a really mixed legacy, and he's someone who, you know, looking now at the amount of literature that comes out every year on Hitchcock say there's no comparison. I mean, Wilder is someone who has really been overlooked of late, I think. And maybe maybe there's a reason for that in terms of his flaws in him as a director that that I guess Thompson picked up on. But I don't know. I mean, you know, in the apartment to me works so well in spite of or because of these supposed flaws. I don't know. It's it's difficult to say in terms of if we want to give a postmortem on Billy Wilder's whole whole career based on this one film, but Something about his style perhaps is dated because of his writerly sensibilities, I think is what I'm trying to say, that maybe he is more dated than other directors. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Than other great directors, I should say. Right. Still better than Manfish. <laughs> his brother's well, uh, 1956 I don't, I've film. never seen it. <laughs> or Bluebeard's 10 Honeymoons. <laughs> Oh God, is that one of them? Because he wrote, because Wilder wrote for Lubitsch, Bluebeard's eighth wife. Oh, in 38, so maybe that was some this kind of... This is 1960, um, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe he's... Um, oh, that's that's bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> so that's very well put. That's interesting. Do we have anything else we want to hit on before we... This was really fun. This was great. One thing I do want to mention, by the way, is that this is the 60th, today is the 60th anniversary of the office party scene... Uh, it was filmed in December, no December twenty third, nineteen fifty nine. They filmed it near the holidays so that everyone would be in the spirit, and it was done almost in one take. Let's end with that. That's the best. <laughs> that's the best end. All those people making out, which is surprising, you know, if you haven't seen the film before, that a nineteen sixty film has that, and the people are making out in the office left and right at their Christmas party. But well, that's what I want to talk about too. I want to talk about growing up watching that movie and thinking that when I entered the workforce, all office Christmas parties would be like that. And what a letdown my life has been since then. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. Some people would say just the opposite, that we've made some progress. <laughs> How dare you? I think that... You know, <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not being quite serious. But I mean, I don't know. To a 10-year-old thinking that that was like the height of sophistication. Well, um, that when you grew up, you could you could make out at office holiday parties. Yes. Well, I have a whole set of 
expectations based on 80s movies that never came to be. Yes, really skewed my <laughs> my conception of human relations in a <laughs> so. Anyway, yeah, so this was uh, like I said before, this was great. Yeah. Until next time. And thank you to everyone who listened to this episode. I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partially Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening.